Welcome to Credit Hour, a weekly thought-provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota. They get the credit, we ask the questions. This is Credit Hour. On today's episode of Credit Hour, we speak with USD Law Professor and the Heidelberg Trial Advocacy Fellow at the USD School of Law, Thomas Horton, about his life, career, and expertise in antitrust. Professor Horton, how are you doing this afternoon? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me here today, Michael. Now, you are a law, a law professor at the USD School of Law, um, and you've had an interesting career, which we want to talk about, but I want to start a little bit earlier than that. Where did you grow up? Well, I was born in New York City, in Manhattan, in fact, in Doctors Hospital, and the first years of my life, I lived down on East 12th Street in Manhattan, and then later we moved up to Fort Washington Avenue by the George Washington Bridge, and my father graduated from Cooper Union. He's a he was a ceramic engineer with 39 U.S. patents, so he eventually found his way out to Ohio, where they were making a lot of very precise parts for aircraft engines and uh, military work, and he moved out there to carry on research in that area. So, so you had a, a family that was highly educated. I mean, did you know then that you wanted to pursue a, a graduate degree or law school in particular from an early age, or did that kind of come to you? No, I think it more came to me uh, during college when I was exploring different areas. I had always loved history and American history especially and done a phenomenal amount of reading in that area. When I got to college, I began as an American history major, but then I took Biology one with the great Edward O. Wilson, and I was so fascinated by his work and uh, sociobiology and all of that that I changed my uh, major at Harvard to the biological sciences. And uh, then I had to eventually work my way back to the law <laughs> from that. So I did take time off in between uh, college and law school and taught uh, high school down in Puerto Rico. Oh, that's really interesting. I've, mm-hmm. I've not been aware of that story. Yeah, yeah. Um, what was that like, I guess? Well, it was an amazing opportunity. I was trying to improve my knowledge of the Spanish language, and I also was very interested in teaching, and it was an opportunity to teach at an excellent Jesuit high school that was kind of a feeder for the Ivy Leagues. So I was working with really good students down there. And it was kind of a transitional time from being a science major at Harvard to uh, a law student. So by teaching American and world history, I kind of got my mind into that more, I guess you could call social sciences history frame of mind. And so you would go to Case Western University Law School. Yeah. Um, For those who aren't familiar with Case Western, can you tell Mm -hmm. us a little bit about it? Well, it's a great science school. It's actually where the uh, Mickelson-Morley experiments were conducted on light, one of the most famous uh, experiments ever conducted in the United States. And so it's known for its science and has a top 10 medical school, not known as well for its law school, which was ranked, uh, I think, about 35th at the time. And my first choice was Georgetown, which I got into. And Case was my, uh, I guess they called it your uh, safety school. But then I got the uh, full ride offer at Case and the economics were just too overwhelming to turn down. Plus, it was an opportunity to stay not too far from my parents living uh, at the Case Western Reserve area. It was only 15 miles from where I had grown up with my parents once we moved to Ohio. So uh, that was nice as well. And my mom worked at University Hospital right there on the Case Western campus. So I got chances to go over and see her working as a nurse. And so that was always a lot of fun. 
So it turned out to be one of the great decisions of my life for me, and I ended up meeting my wife, Karen, through that. Her sister was in my law school class, so things turned out pretty nicely for me, and it's also how I ended up in antitrust because I got a job with the Federal Trade Commission after my first uh, year at law school. So the case decision at first, I was sort of bummed out about not going to Georgetown, but like so many things in life, it worked out beautifully. And then later I tied the knot down when I went to Georgetown and got a master's of arts in liberal studies. So I got the best of the Georgetown education and the case Western reserve life, you could say. <laughs> well, so you would then, you wouldn't enter private practice immediately after law school, correct? You'd, you'd mm-hmm. clerk. Yeah. Uh, can mm-hmm. you tell us a little bit about what that experience is like and, and just oh, sure. what you learned? I, I clerked for two years for United States District William K. Thomas, who was a legend in the Northern District of Ohio and at the time throughout the United States. In fact, he was ranked as one of the top judges in the United States and one of the judges that counsel most liked to appear before because he was so tough but fair and such a hard worker. He would literally read every brief and really think diligently about things. So I was extremely lucky to get that two-year clerkship And it actually came out of my work with the Federal Trade Commission while in law school because I wrote a paper on price signaling, which is the signaling of prices back and forth, which has become a big issue today, of course, with uh, computers and being able to send signals that way. And at the time, that was more of a cutting-edge issue, and I wrote a lengthy paper, and the FTC gave me permission to use it as a writing sample Well, it happened that Judge Thomas had the biggest series of antitrust cases in the country coming before him, and he uh, wanted someone who was really interested in antitrust and had a good background in it. So that paper really secured the clerkship for me. Also, uh, the county where I'd grown up in Ohio, Judge Thomas was out of that county, so we had some background through that. Well, and I think this might be a good time to transition into kind of your expertise. You're known mm-hmm. nationally, internationally, really, um, as an expert in antitrust law. Um, I hate saying this because I just got done taking antitrust and consumer protection sure. with you last fall. It was one of my favorite classes. I entered that class not really knowing mm-hmm. what antitrust was. Yeah. Can you, for our audience, just explain what antitrust is and how it sure. impacts, I mean, really every industry, the entire economy? And I don't think you were unique among the students. I think very few students really have a feel for what antitrust and consumer protection is all about when they come into the course. But uh, by the way, for your listeners, Michael is now a finalist for the best antitrust paper by a student in the world from 2019, along with Sam Breezy from our class as well. So what an honor for the USD School of Law to have two finalists for the best antitrust paper through uh, Concurrences International Writing Awards. And this is the first year of that award. So if Michael wins that, he will be the first best uh, paper ever. So we're very proud of you, and we're glad you decided to take the course. (laughs) Let me go (laughs) back to your question. Uh, Antitrust is the regulation of competition at between businesses in any industry. So of course, in any industry, uh, businesses will compete on a whole host of factors from price to quality to choice, diversity, uh, all kinds of uh, components. And 
antitrust seeks to make sure that we have aggressive competition at all uh, at all uh, the realms of our economic world. So antitrust really is one of the uh, great American inventions. It was created in 1890 after several states uh, passed consumer protection laws that had some competition protections. And it was passed in 1890 by uh, Senator John T. Sherman, and that's why it's called the Sherman Act. And his brother was, of course, William Tecumseh Sherman, who marched through Georgia and ravaged the South and probably saved the Union by taking Atlanta before Lincoln's election in 1864, which until Atlanta was taken, it looked like McClellan was going to beat uh, Lincoln. So we owe, we owe the Sherman brothers great uh, thanks. Ironically, uh, William Tecumseh Sherman never wanted to be in politics and was offered the presidency on numerous occasions, including obviously after Grant, because uh, Sherman had served under him, but he wanted nothing to do with it, whereas his brother, John Sherman, desperately wanted to be the president of the United States, but he just never could get the support that he needed to ascend to that. But he did leave us something great in the Sherman Act of 1890. And basically that has a couple levels which says that it's illegal for businesses to come together and fix certain components of competition such as price, etc., uh, so that they have to compete and not sit down and agree, this is what we're going to charge for, let's say, gasoline here in Vermilion. All the gas station owners come together and say, hey, let's just set our price so that it's two twenty-nine a gallon. That's illegal under the Sherman Act. And it's both a civil infraction, so you can sue for treble damages, and it's also a felony. So there are tremendous penalties, including a 10-year potential sentence for violating that part of the statute. Then Section 2, which is not as well known as Section 1 of the Sherman Act, uh, forbids monopolies, attempted monopolization, and conspiracies to monopolize. And that's what the government pursued Microsoft under some decades ago and actually won that case against Bill Gates, I'm not sure, and Microsoft, I'm not sure most people recognize that. Then out of that, uh, in 1914, we passed what are called the Clayton and the Federal Trade Commission Acts. And those were passed to regulate things like mergers between businesses because if businesses can't fix prices, let's say, then they'll just merge together. So we have to stop them from merging when it's going to create too much concentration. We just had a huge trial in that area in U.S. District Court uh, in Washington, D.C. on the Sprint T-Mobile uh, merger, which ironically the United States Department of Justice was working with the defendants to try to get through, and the states uh, were trying to block a number of them. And the U.S. District Judge ruled on behalf of Sprint and T-Mobile, and it's uncertain now whether the states are going to appeal that. But if they don't, uh, then T-Mobile and Sprint will be allowed to merge and will basically have three telecommunications companies instead of four. So I could go on and on, but antitrust was invented by America, and then more recently it has become a worldwide phenomenon with over 130 countries of the United, in the world now having competition laws that most of them were patterned off of the Sherman and Clayton Act. So they're basically uh, copycats of the United States with their own indigenous uh, changes here and there to... Uh, 
deal with their economies. For example, China has its what's called its anti-monopoly law, but the first statement in it is that this is uh, passed to help protect and foster our socialist economy. So that's somewhat different from what we would have here with our capitalist society in the United States. But when you get down into them, the laws aren't ultimately all that different. You know, one of my favorite anecdotes um, from class, and you mentioned some of the reforms that took place in the early part of the 20th century, mm-hmm. but it was just a historic, it was a historical story that I had just never been aware of, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was about the um, presidential election between Teddy Roosevelt, sure. Taft, and mm-hmm. it was a Woodrow Wilson, was he the yeah, third? 1912. And, um, it, and kind of the way you explained it is it was, uh, it's weird to think about, you know, presidential elections and the issues that, you know, they really become centered on. But this was an issue about antitrust. Right. And, you know, I, I don't. That was a key issue in that campaign. And it's interesting now, I think, to, to think about when you have increasing levels of income inequality. Mm-hmm. And certainly it seems that monopolies, um, especially like tech companies and stuff like mm-hmm. that, that mm-hmm. seems to be growing. And it does seem that mm-hmm. antitrust is becoming politically more relevant. Can mm-hmm. you, first of all, just yeah. kind of explain what happened in, in that presidential election sure. and the varying, I guess, yeah. um, priorities and strategies that the, the mm-hmm. candidates had and how that then influenced antitrust law? Sure. As you mentioned, uh, this was the election of 1912, and uh, William Howard Taft, who had never wanted to be president, but his wife desperately wanted him to be, had spent four years in the White House, and he decided, with pressure from his wife, that he was going to run again to be president. But Teddy Roosevelt, who had been Taft's mentor and had pushed him to become the president in 1908 when Roosevelt finished his almost two terms, was very angry with Taft over some of the uh, positions he had taken that were antithetical to points uh, Roosevelt had taken, including on the antitrust laws where they had a somewhat different view. And so that's where Teddy Roosevelt began running in the Republican primaries. And he was beating Taft. He was more popular than him. But a lot of the party regulars and powers of be hated Roosevelt because he was a reformer and they saw him as a maverick and kind of a wild man, to be honest, and they didn't want him back in the White House. So they did everything they could to block Teddy Roosevelt, including at the convention, making it impossible for him to get the votes because if he had gotten them, he clearly was going to win. And that's when Teddy Roosevelt literally walked out of the Republican convention And he walked over to another place there in Chicago and they formed the Bull Moose Party right then and there. And then Woodrow Wilson was running for the Democrats and he'd had a very interesting background coming out of of Staunton, Virginia, where he grew up and then uh, ultimately getting a Ph.D. and becoming the president of Princeton University and then a reform governor of New Jersey, which had a history of tremendous corruption and organized crime, et cetera, even back then. So you had three candidates, all of whom supported the antitrust laws. And ironically, the issue was who was going to be the most aggressive and the most effective in enforcing them. And Teddy Roosevelt's position was he believed that monopolies were okay as long as the government held a big stick and kept them in line. And I'm beating you know, the company, that's the way Teddy Roosevelt would have looked at it. So when Roosevelt brought 
suits, it was against Northern Securities, the railways, uh, for example. And he said, we're not going to let you have bad behavior. You can get big, but you got to behave yourself. Taft didn't like all these big concentrated companies. So he believed in stopping these uh, concentrations before they ha- happened because he felt the government shouldn't be trying to uh, you know, regulate every piece of conduct that goes on in business. And then finally, uh, Wilson was kind of in the middle. He was just a pro- progressive reformer who felt that government was good, and he was backed by Brandeis and others who wanted this thing called the Federal Trade Commission that would be part of the government that would oversee business. So the three of them got into these very intense arguments about how antitrust uh, should be imposed um, by the government and how businesses should be regulated. And ultimately, because a Republican vote was split, uh, Taft would have been surely reelected or Roosevelt reelected if Taft weren't running, Wilson snuck in. And then two years after he got in, Wilson was able to get through the Clayton Act, which, as we said, uh, was had a number of different sections of it, including what we know today is Clayton Section 7, which... Uh, you know, regulates mergers and acquisitions, and the Federal Trade Commission Act, which created this uh, regulatory body called the Federal Trade Commissioner, Federal Trade Commission, which has five commissioners, and uh, basically has the mandate of regulating unfair and deceptive practices and acts in our economy, and making sure that we don't have unfair practices or acts, which then is broken into what's called the competition side. So, unfair competition. It could be through concentration or through a big company uh, predatorily beating down a smaller company. And then what's called consumer protection, which is advertising and sales. And of course, if you go back to the early 1900s, there were all kinds of things being sold fraudulently and mislabeled and, you know, dangerously uh, sold and all of that. And so the Federal Trade Commission was created to help prevent all that from happening as well. So yeah, I could go on and on about that particular. And you brought something very interesting back by saying it's coming back because we're starting to hear about antitrust in this election. Both uh, Sanders and Warren have are very heavily highlighting antitrust enforcement. Clinton did before that, but didn't get much attention. But now it is getting a lot of attention. And Trump, on the other hand, is trying to say, well, he's being very aggressive in regulating the uh, the big data behemoths like uh, Google and Amazon and eBay, although we really haven't seen any evidence, concrete evidence of that to date. Well, and that's why I love that anecdote is because the same debates on strategy um, to protect competition seem to ne- to never have been resolved. They seem to mm-hmm. sort of play out with the public yeah. policy debates on how we approach companies like Facebook or Google. Mm-hmm. Um, to I guess fast forward here to present times, mm-hmm. what is the mindset in the United States regarding some of these big data companies and where do you think it's going to go in the next five to 10 years? Yeah, well, by way of background, uh, which your question was sort of building around, uh, in the 70s, the United States had the most aggressive antitrust enforcement in the world, and it was very effective, and I think it showed in how we were the world leader economically, in fact, clearly throughout World War II and from then on. And uh, the Clayton Act was revised in 1950 to be even tougher, 
and uh, they were worried about concentrations of of business because they had seen these fascist governments and Japan uh, and Russia. All of those had controlled economies where uh, there were only a handful of companies and there were dictators and there was great concern after World War II that we didn't want to go in that direction. And so the antitrust laws were seen not just as a way of making sure that businesses were competing, but that we had a free society where business didn't have, you know, the final say in what was going on by buying Senate seats and representatives. And if you go back to the cartoons from 1890 and whatnot, when the Sherman Act was passed, you see these big pictures of money sitting in the uh, Senate, and they're called the Whiskey Trust, the Sugar Trust, the Cotton Trust, whatever trust. And we wanted to get away from that. But beginning back in around 1980, the Chicago School uh, of Economics came out with new theories that basically, to me, were old theories, uh, you know, dressed with new garb, um, saying that concentration would be good for our economy because big companies would be more efficient and they would invest more money in research and development and ultimately consumers would get better prices. So the concern of the antitrust laws uh, in terms of regulating concentration was misplaced and we should be focusing only on what they called consumer welfare, which they never really defined, but uh, they've used this kind of a talisman to ultimately say uh, antitrust should not be allowed to be uh, aggressive. So from that, we went to the least uh, effective antitrust enforcer, while ironically in Europe and elsewhere, they became very aggressive so that the Europeans now really are the leaders in uh, antitrust enforcement uh, in the globe. And we are just starting to kind of come back from that People are waking up with the writings of Stiglitz and others to seeing this was a big sham and fraud that was shoved down our throats. And these big companies aren't more efficient. They're not doing more research and development. They're doing less. Uh, What they're very good at is raising prices, cutting quality, cutting innovation, and not serving ultimately the consumers. So consumers have been getting screwed not, you know, getting greater welfare. And so people are waking up and saying, hey, this antitrust thing has something behind it. We need to get more involved with it and ask questions like, why aren't we doing anything? And all of a sudden with data, that's the big hot new industry because it's come on so fast and upon us so quickly. But these giants like Google and Amazon and eBay and whatnot have tremendous amounts of data on us that they've collected. And who owns that? What can they do with that? Who controls that? Do they monopolize that? These are all the kinds of questions. And with these platforms that are being created, like a Facebook social media platform, the more people that get on it, the stronger it gets, and then the harder for the new platform to come in and be competitive against it. So uh, the government today is trying to do something to show the public that it cares about these issues, but they really haven't figured out what they want to do or what they should do. And so really at the moment, not much is happening, but there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of smoke, let's say. You know, that was one part of class that I really enjoyed um, last semester was just kind of digging into how competition actually affects the economy and the ideas 
of efficiency. I mean, we really got into kind of the philosophical underpinnings of a lot mm-hmm. of those topics. And something you said just there, I mean, it reminded me of um, the paper I got to work on with you, mm-hmm. is just you underestimate the competition and the, I guess, savings that ultimately get passed to consumers mm-hmm. that occur within the margins of a supply chain. Mm-hmm. So when you have a giant corporation that controls the entire supply chain mm-hmm. and there are no competitors at varying points, trying to outbid each other, trying to be more efficient, trying to innovate, you lose, you know, savings, technological advancements, you know, what have you, ultimately things that get passed to the consumer that are good mm-hmm. and that's that, you know, the idea that economic efficiency uh, is the end all be and end all be all goal almost sterilizes the mm-hmm. process, and it's sometimes having a little messy process is good. It's good for the consumer. It's good ultimately for the industry. Sure. Um, you know, one thing I wanted to talk with you about today is um, your interest in. Uh, China and its mm-hmm. relation with sure. antitrust. That was within the last couple of years that you testified mm-hmm. before Congress, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, before the U.S. House. Mm-hmm. First of all, can you tell us a little bit about what you maybe testified about and sure. your understanding of China's maybe role in the mm-hmm. in the globe? Well, I'm very aggressive on China. My uh, father, as I mentioned earlier, had 39 U.S. patents in the ceramic engineering industry um, for processes that were used in. Uh, military parts and aircraft, et cetera, et cetera. And so from a young age, I appreciated the research he was doing and really enjoyed uh, watching him at work in the labs and things like that. And so I really became interested in patents and intellectual property, not enough to become a patent lawyer. I liked more litigation and antitrust, but uh, interested in how IP and that fits into the economy. And so I am very uh, bullish on allowing IP, but having conditions that lead to competition that I think lends itself to the best R&D outcomes so that when companies are aggressively competing to create new innovations that they can get to the market, that's the best way to get R&D. And unfortunately, uh, the Chicago school theory, going back to that and what you were saying about vertical integration, again, they felt that bigger was better and big companies vertically integrated would have more money to put into R&D. This goes back to Joseph Schumpeter of Harvard. So let them get as big as they want and make lots of money because they'll reinvest it in new ideas. But if you think about it, nearly every major new idea has come out of garages and people you know, they used to skateboard out in Silicon Valley and then got together and talked about all these things and whatnot. So it wasn't coming from, you know, the big companies. Microsoft was not the ones that create were not the ones that created Google or Facebook or any of these new platforms. So I don't think we've been aggressive enough. But now fast forward to China, which you talked about. I did teach two summers there in Beijing and Shanghai, and because of that I had the opportunity to write a book chapter with one of the counsel from Tencent Corporation and to also uh, gain some knowledge of some of the people that are big in the uh, antitrust world there in China. And so I've written several articles on it. And that's what brought me before the House. And I was very concerned about China's theft of intellectual property and technology and intellectual technology. 
and information technology. And I argued that we should be much tougher on China with this. And, you know, I think China's anti-monopoly law, which has only been in just a little more than 10 years, (laughs) has two faces. It has this public face that you talked about for anti-corruption and fairness, which it shows to the world as kind of its marquee. But nefariously, behind the scenes, I think the real issue for China is its security. And if you think about China, it's surrounded by hostile or potentially hostile countries that have invaded at one time or another, Japan, Russia, you know, on and on we could go. And so China always feels, you know, very paranoid about its security. China has not been good with creating new innovations or technology. And I think part of that goes to, look, you know, in the world's face, it's you see uh, Premier Xi and he's wearing a tie and everything. But he's a brutal communist dictator at the end of the day. And opposition is wiped out. And so China does not have the kind of education system that fosters creativity and innovation like ours does, you know, with schools like Stanford and that, that and Caltech and, and MIT that push this kind. So China's very jealous of us, and I think they've used their anti-monopoly system largely to grab American technology because when mergers come along of big companies, Inevitably, the Chinese will say, okay, we'll let your deal go through, but only if you divest research and technology assets or license certain technologies, which once it's licensed, they're going to take it. So in that sense, I'm very aggressive towards China. And again, I think there's been a lot of talk about what should we do vis-a-vis China, and we've had these tariffs and whatnot. But I think, again, it's a lot of sound and fury signifying nothing. And that at the end of the day, we really haven't been tough enough in dealing with the key issues uh, that go down to things like theft of intellectual property and ideas. Um, I mean, one thing that I loved about antitrust just as a class is one day we'd be talking about China and its relationship with with antitrust and, and competition one day. And then the next day we would be talking about issues related to South Dakota. And that's sure. another thing that we wanted to talk about to you recently mm-hmm. served as a guest editor um, mm-hmm. of an academic journal on right. antitrust. Mm-hmm. Can you first just tell us a little bit about what you did, the, the publication, and mm-hmm. um, I guess what it was all about? Sure. Uh, I was asked by the Competition Policy International Journal, which is an international journal with a tremendous readership throughout the world, if I would be a guest editor, which meant helping to put together a chronicle of seven articles that would be focused on agriculture and antitrust. And we wanted to have both a national side and an international side. So working with the publisher of that, Sam Sadden, we put together a fabulous antitrust chronicle that has seven articles, uh, four relating to competition here in the United States and three relating to different continents. We have uh, Poland from Europe, We had uh, Colombia from South America, and we had, of course, China. So three different parts of the world. And the whole idea of this was to highlight the issues today with agriculture and antitrust, because as you know, farm suicides are at an alarming and historic rate. Farm bankruptcies are at alarming and historic rates. And there's 
terrible things happening economically to the American family farm. And again, you hear a lot of chatter, but nothing concrete being done about it except a few you know, million here or there that's distributed, and then hopefully everybody will shut up and go away. But meanwhile, uh, you know, farmers are dying, and we should be doing something about them. So uh, we put together articles that we felt were hard-hitting towards that, so Diana Moss, who's the president of the American Antitrust Institute, wrote about the consolidation and concentration down from the big six just a few years ago now to the big three agricultural biotechnology companies, which are uh, Dow, DuPont, Bayer, Monsanto, and, and Syngenta, ChemChina, or ChemChina Syngenta. And that footnote, why in the world did we let uh, the Chinese buy one of our major agricultural biotech companies. I still don't quite understand that one. And so now we've allowed this tremendous concentration in this industry, which puts big pressure on the farmers for the things they buy and higher prices, reduced opportunities, reduced choices. And then at the other end, you have, for example, for farmers selling cattle or poultry, we we had this thing called the SPAC the Packers and Stockyards Act that was passed in 1924 to prevent concentration in that industry, the packing industry. Well, do you know today that our packing industries are more concentrated than they were when that uh, act was passed? So the farmers are getting screwed. They're getting screwed on the buying end. They're getting screwed on the selling end. And nobody's really doing anything about it. So we wanted to bring attention to that. So one of our uh, students, a 3L uh, classmate near a 2L, and uh, Dylan Kirkmeyer, who grew up in a farming family, uh, and I wrote an article about John Deere and its current right to repair policy, which has now changed generations of farming where you could fix your own tractors or fix your own combine and, you know, buy part cannibal parts or whatever, to you got to use the Deere representative. You can't have access to the software so you can't fix your own machine and if something goes wrong even if it's just a software the machine stops and you can't start it until you get the guy out there what could be two three days which at harvest time or planting time can just kill you economically especially if you're fighting the weather so you can imagine the angst that's caused throughout the united states and then so dylan wrote a paper on that and we decided then the co-author of the paper that would take that and then build it into worse, or on top of that, John Deere is collecting all this data that the farmers are creating on their own farms, and they're able to aggregate it, consolidate it, and then have licenses with the big three where only they have the data so that they can shut out the innovators, the new companies, and you know have a cozy little group that's serving the agricultural industry. And you know, they're not serving it well. Let's put it that way. Where did the right to repair um, originate from? Well, you know, the big person behind that was Elon Musk of Tesla. And so Tesla has all this, you know, I guess, elaborate software and whatnot. And he came up with the idea that you didn't really buy your Tesla car. You licensed it for the life of the vehicle, whatever that means. So you're licensing supposedly what you bought. You paid for it, but you don't own it. And so he, he, you know, therefore you wouldn't have the opportunity to go in and fix that car yourself or even your local guy. It's got to go to the Tesla dealer. And 
Now, companies like Deere have seen that and said, hey, that's sounding pretty good, especially if we can get all that data. We sell more than 60% of the North American combines and 53% of the large tractors. That means we would have more than half of all the agricultural data created in North America. And we would be able to control that field, which is a growing field of agricultural uh, farming. Uh, through data collection and data analytics. So as you can see, back in the early days, the Department of Agriculture, one of its big jobs was to collect data and share it with the farmers so that they could make good planning decisions and harvesting decisions and product decisions. Well, now the idea is, forget the government, we've got just this handful of companies that control the data, and Gears figured out a way to get it right at the very basic first step and control it from then on. Yeah, Professor, just to take a step back for a mm-hmm. second, I mean, obviously sure. you have a wealth of experience in um, antitrust. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you see, so your first position was a clerkship, and, and you talked a little bit about how that um, kind of led to your next role. Yeah. Um, but what I've kind of found interesting about your career and what I've loved mm-hmm. having you in class multiple times is the different stories we get from sure. kind of different sides of your career. Yeah. So you've worked at some of the biggest law firms mm-hmm. um, in the world. Yeah. You also work for the Justice Department, right. the FTC. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I know obviously there's privileges and stuff like that, but do you have any stories that you could share just from any of those positions? I, there's a few from class that I love, but I'll, I'll see what you want to sure. well, talk about. Uh, you know, I actually started my career, you could say, after my first year of law school, with the Federal Trade Commission, and that job led to uh, getting to work there throughout my second year, and then that's what ultimately led to me getting into my clerkship, which involved the biggest set of antitrust cases in the country at the time. But how did I get into antitrust? It was virtually blind luck. They, uh, after my first year of law school, uh, it looked like I was gonna have to you know, worked the summer at TGI Fridays as a waiter, and I wasn't really digging that at the time. Uh, you know, I'd worked all these various jobs. I was a steel worker actually at 18 and a member of the United Steelworkers of America. So I didn't mind doing these jobs, but at that point I'd kind of had it and wanted to do something better. Well, I saw an advertisement for a Federal Trade Commission job, so I thought, that really sounds exciting. And so I sent in the resume and everything, and I was so excited. They said, come on in for a half hour interview. And so I got dressed in my only suit and I was so excited. I went downtown Cleveland to the FTC's office and I met one of the young guys there and, you know, he interviewed me, went through my resume and he said, well, uh, you seem like a nice guy and you've been, you know, you've had a good career so far, but I just don't think this is the right place for you. And so he sent me on my way and I was devastated. I was really, uh, distraught that day you could say and I'm walking around I didn't go home I just kind of trying to gather my thoughts and finally I went back to my uh, place in Little Italy in Cleveland near Case uh, Western and I called home and uh, to tell my mom you know things hadn't gone so well with this interview and she said oh no 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 Uh, they uh, want you to go play softball with them I had baseball on my resume and (laughs) So she said, can you get to a softball field by six o'clock? They're playing Jones Day, which is a huge antitrust firm. Uh, And of course does other things, but antitrust was its basic calling card. And I said, yeah, I think so. So I found somebody to get me down the field. I got there just a little bit before six and they said, oh, hey, thanks for uh, coming down here. And uh, 
there was a guy, Peter Carfagna, I knew from Harvard on the other side. And he, you know, what's Horton doing? He doesn't work here. And, oh, no, he's going to be a summer clerk. And I thought, that's news to me. I was sent home. <laughs> well, anyways, uh, I did hit a home run in the first at pat of the game and had a really good game. And afterwards, they said, hey, would you come out? And I said, sure, that'd be wonderful. And there the three directors of the office said, hey, we'd like you to come in for a full-day interview Friday. So I went back Friday, and at the end of that interview, I was offered the position, and uh, so a lucky softball game got me into antitrust, and my whole career literally grew out of that summer. So I always feel very fortunate that I didn't strike out in that first at bat. Um, well, you were a heavy hitter in softball, but you were also a heavy hitter as a litigator. I mean, you were involved in some high-profile, complex sure. litigation issues. Mm-hmm. I mean, what what is it like being in the center of a tornado like that? I, I don't know sure. if you can just talk about it. Well, you know, I think the thing that uh, young students today and young attorneys – they want everything to happen in their careers quickly. And, they, you know, I want heavy responsibility and why they want to be up front. But I sort of had the good fortune of uh, working for a U.S. district judge for a couple of years, working again at the Federal Trade Commission, going to a big firm in Washington, D.C. as an associate for four years before I became an equity partner um, in 1990. And so you know, as I worked my way up the ladder, I always had training from the best people in the field and also got to go against the best people in the field, but, you know, got to get my feet wet gently and, you know, move by move. And even though I was very rambunctious and, you know, aggressive at the time, and I always wanted to move up faster, uh, you know, things came at their own natural pace. And so by the time, you know, I suddenly found myself as a lead trial attorney, um, you know, for a big company or uh, with the government for the United States, I had had great training and great experience. And so I didn't feel overwhelmed by those situations. I felt very calm and confident in them. And I could, I had things that I had learned from all my mentors that I was able to apply in my own dealings. You know, when you lead a big Department of Justice of case you have scores of people literally that are working on that case and ultimately you have to make sure everybody's doing their job and getting ready for trial properly and everybody's happy and content and you know you don't have any uh, bad apples on the team or whatever and anybody who's sent here or there around the country to do a depositions going to do it right so I became very grateful when I got into those positions of having that kind of training and background so they didn't feel I was just tossed to the wolves. You know, I, by the time that happened and I found myself going against the best people, I felt I was ready for that. And, you know, it's kind of nice now as a professor, as you know, I'm in my 11th year here at the USD School of Law as a full-time professor. And I'm sort of unique as a, as an antitrust professor, because uh, unlike a lot of professors who become professors early in their career, I had a 28-year career plus the two years while in law school, so 30 years really, uh, before I ever got into becoming an academic. So I'm able to bring, I think, into the classroom all those kinds of experiences and things that have gone on in my career that I can share with the students and that make the subject, I think, more you know, livable and understandable and relevant to their lives and their futures. You know, I've just got a couple more questions for you. Sure. Um, you'd run for Congress. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think this yeah. is, and it's not something we talk about ever really sure. in class, but right. 
That's cool. I mean, I, uh-huh. I don't know. I, first of all, what got you into that? What made you think that this was like a good idea to do it? You ran for U.S. House in Virginia. Yes, I did. Was it in 1994 or 1996? 1996. Um, it, it, tell us about that. I mean, how did you, how did that come about? What did you think of the experience? Well, it was an opening uh, because the 11th District of Virginia, which is part of Northern Virginia, Fairfax County, and Prince William County, was represented by a very uh, popular Congressman Tom Davis. And so he was seen as unbeatable. The polls showed that he was going to, you know, smash whoever they put in there against him. But uh, Clinton was running for reelection and wanted to have a strong candidate in the 11th. Mark Warner was running for his first Senate run against John Warner. He didn't win that, by the way, but he later then uh, did become a senator and he's now in the U.S. Senate. So the congressional slot was open and there were discussions. And I said, yeah, I would. Uh, Really enjoyed taking that on, uh, knowing that the chances of winning were virtually nil. But uh, as I tell people, I got a PhD in politics by running that uh, campaign. And I also got to spend a lot of my own money, by the way. (laughs) You know, you don't exactly bring in the money when you don't have the polls to show people. But uh, ultimately, of the 11 districts that ran, all were reelected, but I got the highest percentage of any of them. So I was very proud of that. And I learned a lot about politics. And I also learned about the impact on my family and all of that. So and how much of it was involved in having to constantly be asking for money. And so while I think I would have really loved being a congressman and writing legislation and doing hearings, the idea of spending my life asking people for money just wasn't who I was. And, you know, I just did. It just didn't appeal to me going forwards. But I am very glad I ran that campaign and it was uh, hard fought. And uh, I learned an awful lot from it and was grateful to have the opportunity to, uh, you know, run a high profile campaign in Northern Virginia, right outside Washington, D.C. And so, again, I thought that was a tremendous part of my education. And You know, you don't obviously share things like that too much because you want to be objective as a professor as much as possible. But, uh, you know, I was running an aggressive antitrust platform in 1996. (laughs) I don't think anybody else in the country was. And uh, as Senator Chuck Robb said to me afterwards, he said, Tom, you ran a great campaign and you made great speeches. It was too bad nobody was listening. (laughs) Yeah, Chuck put that. Very well, I thought. <laughs> now, we've got one question that we ask all of our guests, but I have, I have just one last question sure. um, directly for you, and that's how you how you got to Vermilion. What made you get interested in academia, and then yeah. what brought you to Vermilion, South Dakota? Well, you know, 28 years uh, in, in litigation and antitrust and complex uh, cases was, was a lot. And throughout the last part of that, I really began to feel this calling to teaching. And I loved mentoring young attorneys. I loved teaching for the National Institute of Trial Advocacy and, you know, teaching within the Department of Justice. And I just felt really alive when I was teaching. And I also began writing. I went to Georgetown at night and got a master's degree and really found how much I loved researching and writing. And I thought to myself, I'll be really lucky if I'm able to get a job. I have an older brother who spent his entire career uh, as a geology professor at Cal State Bakersfield, and uh, kudos to him. He was just the seventh professor ever to be put into that school's Hall of Fame, and he'll be uh, put in on April 24th. I'm very proud of him, but he inspired me to 
want to become a professor, but I knew it was going to be very hard because law schools aren't looking for people that have a lot of experience. They're looking more for people that came out of the Ivy League law schools with top grades and have maybe worked three, four, five years max. So South Dakota had a need for someone who could teach trial advocacy, who'd had a lot of experience, but also wanted someone who'd be a tenure track professor who would research and write and produce scholarship. And so I was very lucky that uh, Joe Pascalucci, Professor Joe Pascalucci, was the head of the hiring committee at the time, saw my resume and thought this person might actually fit in well, even though he's, you know, been out a long time. So I got a an interview at the Association of American Law Schools. And ironically, I'd never been to South Dakota. And I thought this interview is going to be a waste of time. They're not going to have any interest in me. And that turned out to be the school that was the most interested. And uh, they invited Karen, my wife, and me out here. And, uh, you know, we both came out here and really fell in love quickly and thought, wow, this is a great place. And so we just hit it off. And, you know, here we are 11 years later, and I couldn't have been happier. It's just been a marvelous experience. I've enjoyed every single day, and I look forward to coming in every day to work with the students here who I really uh, love uh, working with and then watching them go out in the world and uh, succeed in a very tough business. Um, No, that's great. So our last question, and I don't want to get too philosophical here, but it's of a little philosophical nature. Mm -hmm. You've lived an interesting life. We've talked about it this entire hour. Um, You've done cool things. And we didn't even get into some of the stuff with your work, busting mobs Mm -hmm. and all that stuff, which, which, you know, is fun to talk about. But at this point in your life, what do you know for sure? Well, I know for sure that I love working here at the USD School of Law and that I've been very blessed to have 11 great years here and I hope to continue to have some more and I know for sure that uh, I love having a wonderful and beautiful family and I'm very blessed to have that so I always tell our students to find something you're passionate about in the law pursue that or find something passionate for business where you can use your degree and go for that and Never forget that your family comes first and love them every day because it's a great gift. Now, Professor, thank you so much. It's mm-hmm. funny you bring up the word uh, passion because that's what when I think about, you know, you can learn the law, the black letter law from a lot of different people. But I think what separates a great teacher is the one who inspire passion in you and Mm -hmm, just mm -hmm. it's hard to take a day off when we know that you are not you're never taking a day off and so that carries i think to the students and i know that um we all love your classes so thank thank you you very much and thank you for all the work you do here at usd yeah thank you so much and you're quite welcome and i really enjoyed having the opportunity to talk with you today yeah thank you for listening to credit hour a weekly thought-provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the university of south dakota Listening is 100% of the grades. We hope you enjoyed the episode.